Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Philisco. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James. I forgot to think of a joke because this movie's so bad. <laughs> Tip in the I was hand genuinely, uh-huh. I was driving home from dropping my child off at daycare and was like, mm-hmm. I need a joke. I need, I, it's a thir- like a 20 minute drive and I spent the whole time. And every time I started to try to think of a joke, it was like, this movie sucks. So. <laughs> Is one of those movies? So I'd never seen this film before. Um, oh. This was the first time I watched it. Um, I uh, read, did some research on it, learned about how tumultuous this production was, which really made so much sense, right? Like, you, it's one of those movies that you watch and you're just like, so this something went horribly awry, right? Like, something isn't working here on so many levels. And it was, it is. Reading about John Carpenter's issues with the two leads, reading about sort of the, the the fundamental sort of production issues of the special effects and the things that they were doing um, makes all the more sense. And then on top of it, you had a studio that, you know, had any number of other, you know, issues. But how did this movie come into your lives? I, I reached out to both of you, and or Scott most specifically, and was like, hey... You know, what would you guys want to come on for? And almost immediately, he was like, Memoirs of a Disappointment. <laughs> and I was like, all the, right, let's, the, let's do this. There was a little bit of a debate because there was a Hellraiser on that title or on there that was. list that you right. sent. And, and Scott's a big Hellraiser yeah. nerd. And I'm and I am not not so much, but I have very fond memories of, or I had very fond memories of this. But Scott, <laughs> what, what was your, my mind my, my, is a little bit of a long story, so. So what well, was your I, I, I remember seeing this in the theater when I was a, a kid. This is like this came out during the stretch of my life where, you know, I was an only child. And so my parents, in lieu of a babysitter, would often just drop me off at the movie theater and I'd go see a movie or, you know, a few movies while they were off doing whatever it is my parents did for fun. And 
so I'd seen it in a theater and then it was on HBO like every fucking 20 minutes throughout the early 90s you know it was like clue was. just always on and so I've seen it probably I've probably seen it 20 or more times but I hadn't seen it in 20 years or more before last night that was the first time I I saw it again like as an adult more or less yeah sure so so yeah I've been familiar with this movie for a long time but I don't I couldn't like I knew John Carpenter directed it, but I saw it so long ago I wasn't even aware who that was when I was seeing it. Mm. Uh, when I when I first yeah. saw this movie, uh, there was a mall that was about a mile away from my house, and this is the late '80s, early '90s. You know, we're talking about here where parents didn't give a shit if the kid was on a bicycle if they could get there and back on a bicycle then that was fair game and totally unsupervised they didn't give a shit Uh um and so what my mom she was a single mom she had this tip jar she was a a a waitress you know she had all these odd jobs she was secretary waitress and her tip jar was out and on saturday she would just leave a note saying you know take some money go to the movies and so i would like grab you know i think it was like five or six bucks out of the tip jar that would get me my ticket to the movies and uh, at the theater. And there was a uh, McDonald's across the the way. And I could like afford like one of their like teeny tiny, like cheeseburgers and fries meals or whatever for, for that five bucks in the, as again, once again, talking about the early nineties. Um, and uh, this was one of the movies that, that, uh, that I saw. And, and I also want to say that like, I risked life and limb to go to this mall. This is driving across lanes of traffic. This is driving on sidewalks with no bike lanes. You know, it's like, or, you know, and this is just a, you know, a fat kid on a, on a, a bike with neon green handlebars, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, and no helmet. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so every time I went to one of these movies uh, and uh, my theater wasn't cool, they wouldn't let me into R rated movies, but I could get into anything PG 13 and under. Um, so I saw like Renaissance man. There was, what was the, uh, sure, sure. Fuck, what was the name of that? Um, there was a, a Paul Hogan, Cuba Gooding Jr. Lightning Jack, I think oh. it was called. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I, wa- yeah. I watched yeah. that and then I would get bored and this is like a four screen theater. So like if I would ride my bike, if I didn't, we didn't have the newspaper, I wouldn't know exactly what's playing. I just ride my bike and hope to see whatever the next showing was. And so I saw a bunch of really bad movies over and over again. Um, and that's how I saw Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And you have to remember when this movie came out, all those what kind of looked like Weatherman gag uh, Invisible Man effects now, that was crazy like i remember the trailer playing before another movie the audience gasping at some of the the effects that Uh were going on so this was kind of a big deal uh at least for me um and so when you still think the effects look pretty great i gotta be honest with you they do look i I think they hold up i mean the little bits of the movie that i took notice of were like when he's like digesting food in midair or like blowing a bubble or whatever like it's not like you know state of the art but they still look solid Right. And then when he's like, you know, the the kiss in the rain scene and all Mm -hmm. that stuff, everything Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like, it was like, oh, my God, look at this wondrous technology. This is before Jurassic Park. So so it's like the abyss had happened. We'd seen the abyss uh, and knew like, ooh, crazy. What what can can you do? But, uh, you know, I don't know. Like, um, so that that was my initial viewing. And much like Scott, I watched it a lot on cable. And we have a cat cameo. Hello. That's sweet. Say hi. Hi, (laughs) Katie. I, uh. Emily and I were texting a little bit about it last night, and uh, one of the things that I think I remember most, and it's the same for you, Emily, was the poster. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was 12 when this film came out, and I remember remember the poster vividly, 
um, never got me to actually watch the movie, though, so I guess that's whatever. But it it is one of those films that, like, The Invisible Man, you know, that that is this character that has spanned many movies now, is such an arresting thing. It's such an interesting idea. Um, I'm not convinced that, I mean, this film certainly doesn't capitalize on it, but, like, you have Hollow Man, which comes out, you know, a few, uh, couple years later with uh you know paul verhoeven's version of this then you have the invisible man that blumhouse put out right um you know pre-pandemic i thought both of those are pretty good but but it is just sort of i guess and this sort of pauses everybody but emily i'm curious as to your thoughts as to what do you think it is about this invisible man thing that becomes so kind of evergreen i mean i think I think it's a universal sort of what would happen if I became invisible, like that question. Right, 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 because, right. and it's inevitably like, well, then, you know, I go shoplift or I'd sneak into the locker room or whatever. And that, but yeah. like the problem with it is that's act one. And then you like act two and act three don't <laughs> naturally follow. Every yeah. invisible man story has that same problem. I would yeah. argue the, the 2021 actually mm-hmm. does a good job with it because it uses invisibility as a metaphor for domestic abuse in yeah, a way sure. that ends up being uh, like works because it's not just a story about this guy's invisible. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, like hollow man, I think is kind of a mess though. Better than this. Yeah, this yeah. is very boring for a John Carpenter movie. It was the only mm-hmm. John Carpenter movie I hadn't seen. And now I've seen it and I'm so glad I did. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, like, like, I, I mean the, the thirties uh, one with Claude Rains is, mm-hmm. is yes. also quite good, but it is yeah. very much this question of like, okay, uh, I think it's like a way of talking about being a sociopath without talking about being a sociopath. Yes. Because it's the same assumption we make in post-apocalyptic yes. scenarios. Removed from the constraints of society, everyone would become, you know, just like a like a hedonistic a yeah. hedonistic mm-hmm. person. But we A, we know that's not true, and B, like we don't have actual invisible people to like test that against. So right. I would love to see an invisible man movie where it doesn't get rapey. Yeah, you know, that's it's like the thing. It, it, it always would, feels creepy. Yeah, it 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 would be interesting if like a nice a, a nice normal adjusted person became invisible, yeah. and I think that's kind of what Chevy Chase was hoping to achieve here. But it this is Chevy way. Chase's version of nice, normal, and adjusted. You know, well, yeah. uh, and uh, so I think that's as normal and adjusted as we'll get is him staring over a, a naked sleeping uh, Daryl Hannah. This is I mean, this is part of the thing, too, where it's like, I understand if you're invisible, quote unquote, you become a peeping Tom. Like, I guess that's just it just becomes kind of hand in hand. Um, it doesn't need to be, though, but it seems as though that is kind of where it always seems to go. I mean, what is interesting, and you just alluded to this, Eric, of, of like Chevy Chase. So in terms of the development of this movie or how this movie came to be, I guess in 86... Harry F. Saint's book is still unfinished when an agent, Holly, uh, uh, Hollywood agent, William Morris, brings the book to Chevy Chase or the idea to Chevy Chase and says, read this. I think this could be something here. He likes it. They start a bidding war. Warner Brothers buys the book for a little shy of $2 million at the time. And it seems as though Chevy Chase, if you read any interviews with him, his whole thing was like, this is my great chance to get out from underneath the chevy chase of it all right Man, like that's how do he, i that's where he screwed up i didn't ask, can, we, can, we, can, can we curse uh i didn't ask yes absolutely because okay. absolutely. Yeah. i i if you notice I, that that's where we fought uh, i mean that's where he screwed up 
I mean, that's it is this weird, and you can see that the movie's kind of bipolar because of it, right? Yeah, oh, like you have a studio that wants Chevy Chase to be Chevy Chase. You've got Chevy Chase who theoretically doesn't want to be it, although I'm not convinced he if i was chevy chase i wouldn't want to be chevy chase like I, well, that's, that's just... fair. <laughs> <laughs> certainly now yeah i mean so you just have kind of this this water and oil situation of a guy who is trying to pot- potentially stretch his you know abilities or at least the way people perceive him but this comes to sort of my question to everybody which is what are your what are your Chevy Chase feelings? I mean, I didn't grow up on Chevy Chase, so I might not have the same affinity. Scott, or... um, I I grew up with Chevy Chase movies. You know, mm-hmm. my I remember as a kid thinking that my dad reminded me of a Chevy Chase character. You know, he was pretty kind of not bumbling, but a little bit here and there enough to where a comparison could be drawn. Um, uh, I, I remember him having big ideas and, and trying to see those things through and them frequently like going awry in some way. It was all very National Lampoon's vacation, you know, sure, Clark sure. Griswold type. But as a, as a result of me growing up with Chevy Chase, I have a very soft spot uh, in my heart for Chevy Chase. I think he is uh, uh, clearly a nightmare to work with. Um <laughs> is uh seems to be like um totally comfortable with everyone believing him to be a racist i don't know if he's a racist but he certainly seems comfortable like acting that way um he's ask anyone that's worked with him it's like he's this guy fucking sucks (laughs) i can hold that idea in one hand and i can also hold the fact that i love say vacation or fletch like fletch i watch fletch every year on my birthday i love that movie um it's it's so it's it's weird for me i can i can look objectively at um chevy chase and understand that he is not beloved by any stretch of the imagination but i'm always gonna have a a soft spot for him because i grew up with his stuff yeah yeah big same um and i actually met chevy once uh and uh it was everything you'd want it to be so i went to i was a big fan of community when it was on the air and uh At the time, I was writing for Ain't It Cool News, which had it was a big enough powerhouse in the industry that that when you know I made mention of that, they said you know uh, who was there? Somebody reached out. I don't remember exactly how it worked. It was a publicist who was like just sending like here's the DVD for season one or whatever. And I said, hey, uh, I go to LA quite often. If there are any t- chance to come by, I can do a set visit or an interview or something. And and they're like they were like so excited by that it, because apparently you know this is when Community came on. It wasn't. You know, it was yeah. barely clinging on by its fingernails, you know, in, in relevancy, and, and it wasn't getting any support. And uh, so they didn't have a budget for press stuff, but I was, you know, I was already in LA a lot. So anyway, I decided to go, uh, you know, to the set. Uh, it was season two or three. I think it was three. Um, and they're like, you, you can interview anybody you want. You hear the doors open and you're like, please give us publicity, help us publicize the show. And uh, and I'm going around like walking around and go, oh, these sets, oh, there's the library set there. I'm sitting at the table sure. and all this. Uh, and so I interview everybody from the cast, but like I'm doing it in chunks. So I did like Allison Brie and Gillian Jacobs and Joel McHale on one one set. And then I did Donald Glover was off like writing lyric. He was doing like uh, Childish Gambino, like sure, off sure. his own world stuff. But then when he was ready, it's like he's like, like, here, talk to him. And that's where I met Chevy Chase. 
where I'm walking, I'm talking to, uh, and so I have this on, on audio actually, and I've, I've actually run it on our show because I've told the story on, on the Kingcast before, and, uh, and I found the audio clip. But so I'm interviewing Donald Glover about something, and then uh, the publicist walks by with Chevy Chase and and uh she's like hey let me introduce you to chevy real quick and he goes hi i'm sybil shepherd's vagina oh, and uh <laughs> and donald glover <laughs> donald glover without without missing a beat says you don't look like how i thought you'd look <laughs> uh and that was like my first introduction to chevy and then they're like oh do you want to interview chevy and i'm like absolutely i'm much like scott i grew up on uh vacation movies uh-huh. i uh, you know, fuck, I watch Spies Like Us. I watch Three Amigos. Like, I'm, you know, oh, I, yeah. I, I, lo- I loved him as a screen personality. And uh, so I'm like, I'm going to get my shot. Whether the interview turns out, you know, worth a damn, mm-hmm. I guess we'll find out. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to turn down a chance to talk to Chevy Chase. Sure. Um, so I sat down with him, and it was actually the first third of the interview. was like, wow, you're really thoughtful. You're being really kind. You're really you know, like looking out for the show, it seems like, and, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we get into, like, I, I asked him a question about, and I, I admit it's a little bit loaded because I had heard from some of the producers that a lot of Pierce's, his character Pierce, a lot of his eccentricities were written in specifically because sure. they saw Chevy doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Specifically, there's a moment in the first episode, I believe, where, Chevy uh, gets into a fight with um, oh fuck I forgot her character's name but she's the she was the the black lady in the group right Yvette Nicole Brown uh, sure Yvette Nicole Brown was the actress yeah, yeah I don't remember Shirley. her character's name but she uh, like he they they they're like arguing the whole time and then he apologizes to her at the end of the episode that's the end sure. of his arc but he yeah. does it by sitting down next to a completely different black woman and right. apologizes to her and, and and doesn't realize that it's not her because you know he thinks they all look He's the same i guess racist. Yes, sure. uh that was written in the show because that actually happened uh to that chevy had exact same thing with with the same mm-hmm. actress uh, and then went up and apologized and apologized to a completely different black woman and uh uh so that was written in the show and i knew that in the back of my mind but i was like going well you know Jesus. maybe i want to see what his point of view was so i asked him about like pierce like uh-huh. how, how much you know pierce is him that kind of thing and and he got like really sad and he's like yeah well much like my character pierce like the group kind of excludes me like they're all on text chains and and all this stuff and he's like and i admit it feels pretty bad and i hate you know being labeled stuff you know i get here labels of like races like clark griswold can't be racist right and it was just and i'm he's i'm like what where that went from zero to 60 real quick and then he goes well the real issue though uh is that most of the cast is female um and when they get on their periods they uh, oh you know, the, you know, you, they're unpredictable. <laughs> and, and I and I laughed because I thought he was making a oh. ridiculous joke. And he just looked at me like. Like, you're like, why are you laughing? Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit. All the stories you heard were true. So isn't this yeah. like this? I mean, yes, obviously, this is indicative of an, a later stage Chevy Chase or at least, right. you know, yeah. but I also just feel like this is a guy who did one season of SNL, if I'm not correct, if mm-hmm. I'm not Wrong, right mm-hmm. like yeah. one season yeah. was like i already know i'm a movie star i'm getting out of here and has obviously a run that we've just you know that yeah. you were talking about the national lampoons the the fletches caddyshack yeah. like a huge 80s guy yeah um and i guess he wasn't wrong in the sense that you know he struck while the iron was hot he saw an opportunity right. but obviously had a chip on his shoulder from the jump and it feels as though that evolved into just you know what's what's yeah that and all the cocaine 
I mean, you can't, spend, <laughs> you can't spend 10 years blowing rails the size of speed bumps and not have it impact your personality somehow. I mean, you, it, 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 that false sense of sure. superiority. Um, Absolutely. I think a part of it has to do with his background. He was a rich kid. And, you know, and the yeah. other part has to do with the fact that, you know, he was, you know, a raging cokehead, allegedly. I, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> I just want to put a pin in this. We don't have to talk about yeah. this now. Chevy Chase yeah. is the reason I know one of my best friends, and directly Chevy Chase is responsible for that. But let's uh, oh. just keep well, going. Yeah, like, we'll keep going. Uh, I'll oh. give a little bit of context for listeners who haven't uh, blissfully seen memoirs of an invisible mm. man. Uh, Nick Holloway, played by Chevy Chase, is an average businessman who undergoes an extraordinary change when an experiment goes awry, turning him invisible. Government operative David Jenkins, played by Sam Neill, discovers Nick in his see through condition at a scene of the accident and arranges for him to be taken into custody but he escapes as nick tries to find out more about his strange condition he receives aid from alice monroe played by daryl hannah a pretty acquaintance who helps him avoid capture memoirs of an invisible man opened on february 28th 1992 against wayne's world stop or my mom will shoot medicine man and of course the mighty ducks it would go on to make 14 million dollars on a 40 million dollar budget it has 26 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics and 32 percent from audiences uh roger ebert gave the film two and a half stars and said this the story this time revolves around chevy chase as a man who is in the wrong place at the wrong time when a secret government experiment goes awry and renders him invisible the plot is lazy and conventional and what is what is good about the movie involves chase and hannah who have to work out between them the logistical problems of their strange relationship it's one thing when love is blind it's another when the lover is invisible how can uh, how about a movie that was about this real subject, a relationship between a man and a woman, uh, sorry, a man who can see a woman and a woman who cannot see a man? What would they really talk about? What's unsettling or intriguing uh, sexual possibilities might there be? Dear, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Roger Ebert, man. Like, when forget he was how off horny the chain, that dude was. Yeah. He's so horny. Uh-huh. Uh, in the end, he says, uh, Daryl Hannah, who uh, who is on screen much of the time all by herself talking to Chase's disembodied voice, makes as much as she can of such opportunities. Uh, she has fun with the cosmic absurdity of the situation, but the movie doesn't help her much. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to kind of ride for a movie this pulseless. Like, it yeah. just has no and i don't mean to but like it really has no anima like it's just lurching it gets really dull in the second second act yeah yeah once it gets into that beach house yeah it's (laughs) it's pretty rough It, it it's it feels too like carpenter had notions of what he wanted to do with it and then between the two stars which were giving him problems and a studio that wanted something pretty milk toast he just had nowhere to go I mean, there's, there's an, I think the interesting, listen, you take the whole um, ego driven star vehicle aspect out of this, it increases the, the chances of this movie being better a hundredfold. It's like all the decisions of like what it's, it's really odd. And it, it didn't bother me when I saw it when I was a kid, but let now watching it going, it's such an odd choice to show the invisible man after he's invisible right so and that's a hundred percent of like chevy's like no i'm the star of this movie god damn it like you're even when i'm invisible like i can't see myself but i want the audience to see me like it it, it's really bonkers and and it kind of makes us unique i can't think of another invisible man story where once the man is invisible you know that uh that you can see you're seeing him yeah it's uh and they don't play it like he can turn it on and off by the way i'm for anybody watching or listening to this who hasn't seen the movie it's just he gets in this accident. He falls asleep in a sauna during a boring 
um uh presentation Lecture. yeah presentation and uh and because coffee is spilled on the keyboard suddenly the whole building gets half invisible and um and him in, inside of it and uh <laughs> as you do that's what happens when i spill shit on my keyboard too um but, but i mean is there a lazier conceit for a movie than someone spilling yeah. coffee on fucking computers like it, it's just not if this is like a, a forthright comedy in yes, a version yes, yes. where it's very silly, that could work. Right. But this mm-hmm. movie, like, um, I will give I will give Chevy Chase credit for this. This movie mm-hmm. does want to capture a certain sense of loneliness that would come yeah. from nobody being able to see you. He just, I mean, it, it just isn't up to that task. <laughs> like, its Which stated goal wanted. is fine. Its stated yeah. goal is yeah. fine. Yeah. But yeah. like the the the, it's just tonally a mishmash. So uh, anytime it seems like it's capturing that pathos, it's um, few and far between. Leading. It's it is. <clears throat> excuse me. It is interesting that the so the person who originally was directing this was Ivan Reitman, mm-hmm. which makes sense, right? Like Ivan Reitman. Tone, yeah. Ghostbusters yeah. tone, but even like you know later in Reitman's career where he's doing legal eagles and he's doing things that are more sort of terrestrial and grounded, like I think he's the right guy. And unfortunately, it seems like him and Chevy Chase come to loggerheads when a script comes in that is more comedic in tone, and Chevy Chase doesn't like that. A and script, by the like, way, from William Goldman, who is one of acknowledges <laughs> the one of the screenwriter. best screenwriters of, of all time. Who, uh, by the way, this ties into what we were talking about before mm-hmm. we started recording this. Uh, credited on Dreamcatcher as well, uh-huh. Stephen King. Dreamcatcher. Hey, hey, he's, uh, he's Stephen King, a expert. legend. Uh, yeah. Yes, um, but uh, I he reading. <laughs> A William Goldman Chevy Chase vehicle, which is what it sounds like he wrote, uh, where Chevy Chase is invisible and fucking things up every <laughs> everywhere. That is that's the movie I want to see. But you know, yeah. again, every problem like I believe with this film uh, boils down to that this is my serious breakout from Chevy. Like if they could yeah. have either uh-huh. separated Chevy completely from the movie and recast it, or you know, convince Chevy like no, like play in your wheelhouse, play what you know, play yeah. to your strengths. Um, I think that we would have gotten some at least more memorable because the uh, as uh, like Emily's mentioned before, we've you know this is kind of this like, it exists in this like middle road of of tone where it's just kind of bland, like yeah. there it's it doesn't know what it wants to be. There are moments where he's like fumbling with chopsticks, where it's pure Chevy Chase, you know, in Fletch mm-hmm. mode, and then there's you know times where he's just trying to be deadly serious and and try as he might to stand yeah. up to the you know know the charisma of sam neil you know uh Who's, you know, who has is great in this but i but i also has, just feel lot, like he has a lot a lot of trouble trying to hold on to his american accent have, in this one i know yes. have, uh, any, yeah. have any of you read the william goldman chapter on this in his no, uh, no. The second uh, adventures of the screen trade book i don't, I don't believe the, i have yeah. it's it just sounds it does sound like he got very like very like against you know Chevy and him were were fighting about what this yeah. movie should be but like William Goldman's idea of it is like just imagine how cool it would be if you could see a digestive system digesting food as it was being eaten and I'm like okay sure like they have that in the movie <laughs> for like 10 seconds yeah. but like he was like writing about it. it's like he wanted to get into like the physical realities of being invisible right. and like I don't know what the movie is there either so mm. It, well, that's... It, it does feel like they both – I mean, there's just so many conflicting ideas. I do love the quote from William Goldman. He said he left the project and said, I'm too old and too rich for this shit, which I think <laughs> is incredible, where he's just like, well, enough is enough. 
<laughs> which is yeah. great. Um, there's also a quote from Carpenter from this year, actually, which I think sums up his feelings. Uh, it gave me a chance to make a quasi-serious movie, but Chevy Chase, Sam Neill, who I love and have a long friendship with, and Warner Brothers, I worked for them. It was pleasant. No, it wasn't pleasant at all. I'm lying to you. It was a horror show. I really wanted to quit the business after that movie. God, I don't want to talk about why, but let's just say there were personalities in that film. He shall not be named. Who, should, who needs to be killed? No, no, that's terrible. He needs to be set on fire. No, no, anyway, I survived it. So, like, <laughs> I do think that he at least is a little bit playful about the experience right. now, but it seems as though there was something that I thought was interesting about what Chevy Chase physically had to go through to make this film, mm. which does seem arduous and fucking terrible. Um, there is this device that, <laughs> that he had to wear, which was a set of blue eyeball sized contact lenses that would so that his eyes the whites of his eyes wouldn't appear while they were filming yeah yeah right sounds like a fucking nightmare to me you have to numb there's like sedative medication you have to numb the eyeballs it it sounds like a fucking torture device so like i kind of understand why you might have been miserable yeah i I haven't found an organic place to to fit this yet so i'll just go ahead and throw it here i think i like this movie more than anyone else here but I would be hard-pressed to mount mm. a defense of it. I sure. think part sure. of that is the nostalgia factor that I grew up with it, you know, and that's mm. just, like, inescapable. You you can't argue with how your brain was wired at a certain age. Another part of that is, you know, like I was saying before, about how I, I do have a soft spot for Chevy Chase, as much of a, a monstrous human being as he apparently is. But the third thing is I really just think the effects are cool. Like the the part where the building is like halfway visible, halfway not, I think is that looks cool dope as fuck. And I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone else. I've seen bits and pieces of that sort of thing, mostly in video games, but not mm-hmm. not on a whole ass building like that in a movie. And it's yeah. uh, watching it last night. I was just gawking at it. Like this is Same. that's a really cool effect. I love all the all the stuff with him chewing or smoking or you know anything else he does. Um, yeah. And I think that there's something to be said for, um, I'm a big uh, uh, fan of Saturday Night Live as an institution, particularly the comedians that it has produced over the years, right? So Mm -hmm. Chevy Chase is uh, part of a a school of that, that early run in Saturday Night Live's history where you had a number of these guys break out and try to get into movies. You know, Bill Murray, John Belushi, fucking Chevy Chase. You know, um, both Belushi and Chevy Chase tried to go serious, uh, and it didn't work. You know, Belushi did it in um, what is it, Northwest Passage? Northwest Passage mm-hmm. is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Fucking fell flat on its face. Um, Chevy tried to do it here, and it didn't really work. Only Bill Murray was capable of of pulling that off and so holding that history in my mind i'm like i think it's just i i can't i can't sit here and tell anyone it's a good movie but i think it is interesting from that perspective in that it's this little corner of comedy and cinema history where you're getting to see this this comedy powerhouse actor just fucking with it you know he's just not that interesting when you take away all the all the gimmickry Mm. of of chevy chase I've been yeah. I've been thinking about what it is that makes a comedic actor able 
to shift to dramatic because so few of them do it. Um, um, Bill Murray has, and and uh, Robin Williams, of course, was great at it. And oh, I think man. it's that those first few roles have to be you maintain your comedic persona, but the movie shifts around you. Like Robin Williams goes serious uh, several times early in his career, and it doesn't work, but it clicks when he does Good Morning Vietnam because he's being Robin Williams, and the movie around him has completely changed. Similarly, Bill Murray and Rushmore or um, Jim Carrey and Truman Show are just being themselves, and then the movie is is doing the heavy work, and then they can start to evolve in that direction. But sure. yeah, Ch- Chevy Chase... Um, he actually, my one of my favorite Chevy Chase movies is Funny Farm, directed by George Roy Hill, which yeah. like few people have seen. I saw yeah. it because it has the word farm in the title. And when I was a child, I was allowed to see movies about agriculture. Um, <laughs> but uh, he like, that's a that's a better example of it. it's a kind of a ribald Chevy Chase comedy, but the stakes are a little bit more human scale. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it not everybody loves that movie. I think it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, like it, it, he needed to do more stuff like that where he's still himself, but the movie around him is shifting in a different direction instead of like, whatever he's doing here. Yeah, funny. There's fa- also funny farm and Sorry, like Money Pit are kind of like tied mm-hmm. or like in my mind together. Maybe it's just because they would always run back to back on on cable or something in the eighties. Yeah, yeah but, like, far- funny farm is written by a guy named Jane Ansley, who was a sports reporter somewhere. Uh, also wrote the book that Quick Change was based on, that Mm -hmm. Bill Murray ultimately directed. Just a little fun fact for that ass, you know. (laughs) I, I, you know, I think there are pockets in this film where you can see that Chevy has that gear. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are moments, there's there's a moment um, uh, deep in the movie where there's a quote that I pulled from it where he says... Uh, I don't sleep well. I can see through my eyelids. I can see through the top of my head. I get wall-eyed. I get bat shit. And it's a, it's a great line. And it's kind of a moment when you realize like this guy is kind of dangling by a thread. And I do think that Chevy delivers it well. It's just from a different movie, <laughs> but right. like, you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. there's these moments where you're like, okay, there that's, that's interesting. And, and Scott, you talking about that, the the building which i similarly was like holy fuck like how did they pull that off uh-huh. it actually made me think of the end of interstellar when they're in the bookshelf oh yeah and like it, it just had a really sort of beautiful tactile feel to it which is the thing i think that you were sort of talking about with the effects like it all just feels very lived in and it feels very sort of like within our world um again it's all about tone and it just kind of it's vacillating all over the place but when it does kind of lock into something you're like there is something special here they're just unable to harness it yeah i agree with that there's there (laughs) because the tonal it's not like i don't think this is a movie where you can say it's it's like a disaster tonally, like it's whipsawing between these two extremes. It's really not. It's riding the line right up the middle, and every once in a while, it kind sure. of flips over to one side <laughs> or another. So yes. it's like, but that's like part and parcel with how just bland the thing is in in general. I think I, I think that's really as we're talking through this, and I've been thinking about this since last night when I watched it, and I didn't hate it. Sure. Um, I, I think that's. <laughs> that's what's going on here it's like i find a lot about the movie very interesting and compelling and a lot of it is how it, how it was made and what the contextually how it fits into the careers of these other people 
like John Carpenter is another one of them. Like fucking, if you showed me this movie cold, I would not in a million years guess that it was a John Carpenter movie. <laughs> None of his hallmarks yep. in here. Um, he's got a full fucking orchestra in here. He didn't even do the score, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that's what it, I think that's, I think that's what I'm realizing as we're co- having this conversation. It's, it's not a good movie, but it's super interesting to me. And I think that's why I like it. Hmm. Well, I, it, I think yes. it's just a little too, I don't know, unmemorable. And it, I think it might be a little inaccessible for people today, like who haven't seen it that didn't grow up in the time, like because it's just this is a time before TikTok. You know, this is a time where, uh-huh. you know, the sure. it asked you to, hey, we're going to sit and chill while he orders caviar and fucking expensive vodka. You know, it's like we're going to we're, we're, we're sure. going to it's kind of a lackadaisical um I don't know, thrust to this movie. Cause I, I was thinking of like what I, it, you present to me memoirs of an invisible man or nothing but trouble. What am I going to watch of those two? Nothing but trouble is unquestionably the worst movie, but it is yes. far more entertaining because they yeah. are swinging for something. They may, and them sure. not well, getting a bigger it. train wreck. You want to, if you're going to watch a train wreck, you want to see right. the one where the most cars explode. So yeah, you know, nothing <laughs> but trouble. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's, then made that goes back to this, just, you know, it's a fine movie. It's not, you know, it, it has its its ups, its downs, but it's ultimately just kind of a solid people whatever. Like, it's, people, like, fucking hated this movie. Yeah. And I don't think, yeah. it, you know, if I had to guess, I can't, like, you know, um, uh, backseat drive from, you know, 30 years on. But it, I think people were probably kind of burned out on Chevy Chase a little bit at that point. I think they pro- the people that probably did show up to this movie felt burned because it wasn't what they were hoping it was or you know maybe what it was what it was sold as um but i don't i don't really understand the like it's not a, it doesn't feel like a 26 on rotten tomatoes to me it feels more like yeah, a I, I, like a high 60s or like maybe even 50 50 and yeah. I, I said something about this last night on twitter i was like um many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You know, that I, I, I still don't really understand the, the, the venom that this movie got. And somebody popped up and was like, um, well, I guess you might, what, how did they fucking phrase it? They basically blamed it on the, the blackface scene that's in the scene. Right. And I'm like, which I don't is think rough. that's what it was. I don't think in 1992, um, people were looking at this with 2023 eyes. I really don't think that yeah. was the issue. It was. It's got to be something else entirely. And I had, a few, I had a few people pop up and mention that. And it's, 
I mean, it's, it is, it is brutal. a movie, but somehow, yeah. like, yeah. people who I'm certain have probably never even seen it were like, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know. But I, I, do, I do think, though, to, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I read a lot of the contemporary reviews when we do this, and it doesn't really come up in them, but Chevy Chase at the time did already have a reputation as like riding that line on mm-hmm. racial humor where it went over the line even in a 90s context. So I wouldn't be surprised if some people dinged it, but like I didn't find any evidence that they did at the time. Sure. I don't I don't it, think I, that the I don't think the audiences of 1992 were kept away in droves to the tune of 14 million because of a 90 second brown facing is is sure, my only sure. point. It's it's and I I don't know. I think it's probably for the reasons I I said before. I think it's I think it's kind of bland. I think it's People were getting burned out on Chevy Chase because this is what, like a year or two away from cops and Robertsons, and that was pretty Correct. much the fucking nail in his coffin, <laughs> thematically, right? Yes, that it is a couple years later. It is, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a mixture of. Um, I watched the trailer for this as well, just to kind of get a sense of like how it was marketed to people, and mm-hmm. I think that it was marketed as a lot more of a sort of, you know, whimsical comedy adventure, right? Sure. And it's kind of not really that either like it's kind of it, it weirdly the vo kind of has a double indemnity vibe just because of the mm. way that it opens yeah so you're kind of like it's kind of noirish it's kind of existential about this guy who already was quote-unquote invisible but he had no friends he had no loved ones <laughs> he just basically existed like it, it, it's just i think it's just a very kind of oddly challenging movie and it's also dull. Like, it's just, it's got all these things mixed into it that's strange. But thinking about what you're talking about, Scott, of looking at it now through a 2023 lens, I actually think it's more endearing for the reasons that we're talking about, right? Like, the tactility of it, the fact that it feels like something that mm-hmm. that is a little bit lived in. Um we don't really get that anymore, right? Like all this would be CG. And the fact that most of this is done in camera for the most part is pretty impressive. Um, I also just want to talk for a second about Carpenter, who I have to be perfectly honest, up until Blank Check did their miniseries on Carpenter, he really wasn't my guy. Like I had Hmm. seen a handful of his movies, but I hadn't really seen the breadth of his work. And in fact, I skipped this one when they were covering it. (laughs) So whatever. But... It is interesting to look at his filmography, which is just kind of fucking bangers for for the first half of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China. Like, crazy it's crazy, they it's live, fucking yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like it's a crazy run. And then he does Prince of Darkness and They Live, which were part of his deal that he did with um, outside of the studio system. Yeah. And he comes back to the studio system for this movie, and I would argue this is the beginning of the end. Like, the rest of the movies he does after this, outside of In the Mouth of Madness, which I know people really like, um, which is the Sam Neill movie, movie which I hear is great. It's then it's Village of the Damned, that terrible remake, Escape from L.A., which is brutal, Mm. Vampires, Ghosts from Mars. Like, it's just, it's, it's all kind of crap from that yeah, I, I like vampires uh but vampires has the same kind of problem that memoirs has where it's like sure. it's trying to be three different movies and the one and as much as i it pains me to give him credit like james woods is so fucking good in in vampires yes, and he yes. brings so much life life into that thing and but but yeah i can't decide if it wants to be a comedy a horror comedy like a, a an edgelord movie i don't know it's like it's writing like four different 
tones in that one. Uh, but the tones that work, I think, work like gangbusters in that. Uh, but I, but I'm ride or die for um, in the mouth of madness. So so yeah. I don't think all of his his 90s output. And I like um, body bags, which he it's an anthology. He yeah. He oh sure sure. Produced. His yeah. uh his Showtime Masters of Horror episodes are both pretty good. Uh, yeah, like, I think Reverend's those are the best good. things he produced post Mouth of Madness. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the war is uh, real, uh, real rough. He's now directing he's a thing from his video house. games. Did you see this? <laughs> like, I, lo- I love John Carpenter. I don't want to say anything bad about John Carpenter, but also I think that, you know, John Carpenter does not give a fuck anymore. You know, like, I do not At all. for a minute believe that he's like, he, you know, um, <laughs> invested with the passion that the same John Carpenter that made Halloween and the thing with. You know, and I think that maybe that's the explanation for the 90s output is that he started as as he started having more and more complaints about working within the studio system and, you know, taking notes from these people, despite the fact that he had that that series of home runs. You know, it's entirely possible. He was just like, you know, fuck this. I'll I'll go on autopilot and that'll be that. I mean, you talk about goals, like just getting to an age where you made it. So, Scott, consider like we have people that want to reboot the King cast into eternity. And every time they do, they send us a check for each millions of dollars. Do it. So (laughs) yeah. And and you would have that same attitude. Right. And then it'd be like, then what is life? Life is like, I'm going to fucking get high. I'm going to play my music. I'm going to play my video games and keep receiving them royalty checks. Keep rebooting my, you know, my stuff. I was at a, a dragon con in 98 where Carpenter was there promoting vampires. And, he somebody asked him about Halloween H2O, which had just come out ar- around then. Sure. Um, and he's like, Hey, have you seen it? And he's like, No. And uh, and he's like, Well, what do you think? Like, we round of applause, like, you like it? And about a third of the crowd, like, you know, applauded. It's like, Did, did you hate it? And like, the rest is like, Yeah, because it's a horror convention. They're like, Fuck anything that's not the original. Um, because this is back in when they still didn't like uh, Season of the Witch, by the way. And now I bet you everybody in that audience is like, Oh, I, oh, I've always loved that movie. Um, but anyway, like, he uh, he was like, okay, great. He's like, to me, I don't care. Every time they they make one of these sequels, I get a check for a million dollars, and they can make a million more of them. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. And, and, uh, Passive payments. I mean, yeah. what what's there's nothing better. Yeah. I mean, I do think that he, I mean, he's clearly just doesn't give a shit anymore. He just yeah. wants to cash checks. He truly every time he's interviewed, all he wants to talk about are the video games that he's playing. I mean, he doesn't want. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he even really watches movies or TV really anymore. Um, I, I have a friend who went out with <laughs> went out with a pitch with John Carpenter. This was years ago. Um, and every single pitch they went to, I believe it was a TV pitch, um, Carpenter would smoke a cigarette or try to smoke a cigarette, and they'd be like, you can't smoke in here. And then he would torpedo every single pitch. Like, my buddy was just watching <laughs> as Carpenter just destroyed every fucking chance he had, which I think is, I mean, funny, but also just like, yeah, I mean, that guy just doesn't give a shit anymore. Yeah, like, the, why, the, why dude, care? the dude became kind of a creature of comfort. Um, I'm going to share one of the very first sets that I ever went on was ghosts of mars and that was sure. that was like ain't it cool had started but i hadn't we hadn't this is back in the the days where like the studios still just were blatantly hating everything like their persona mm-hmm. non grata that kind of thing it wasn't the powerhouse yet because i was like 97 98 i guess um when he was shooting that 99 i don't know but uh, i went out there and they were doing night shoots in in studio 
which is odd because when you're in a studio, the reason you do that is because that gives you control of all the lighting. Correct. Right. If you want to make it night in there, you can make it night, you know, True. and shoot it during the daytime. And the crew night shoots are notoriously tough on crews, like, you know, because it throws off your mm -hmm. circadian rhythm. You know, if you have a family, the family's off doing shit during the day while you're asleep and then you're up and you don't get to see anybody. It's brutal for crews. Um, sometimes it's a necessity. He was doing night shoots because he's a night owl. And he just right, said, right, right. no, you know, I want to sleep until four or five uh, in the afternoon. And this is just my schedule. So he made everybody else get off Which of that incredible. schedule to shoot That's nights, amazing. including uh, Ice Cube. So <laughs> the good old Ice Cube, who uh, I, was in a bad mood and looked, looked, looked at during the whole movie. So I have a, a question. This is mostly for you, Emily. Hi. Uh, Chevy Chase, hot in this movie? Not hot in this movie. Uh, not really. Like, he, he's okay. Like I certainly wouldn't. Kick he's him. naked at one point, and yeah. I was like, "Chevy Chase is kind of cut." Yeah. Like he's, oh, you knew uh, he knew there was there was gonna be that yeah, shot. I read he lost like twenty pounds for this. He's sure. he's definitely in shape, but it, it's like there's a thing about Chevy Chase where he kind of needs to have a dad bod to be hot. Does that make sense? <laughs> sure. like, I feel like he's right. at his hottest as like weirdly as Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation where he's right. clearly just kind of like doesn't care anymore and he's in sweaters. Yeah, give me that, baby. Give me that. <laughs> it's also a Christmas movie and we know how you love Christmas I would, I would, I would be such a good Mrs. Griswold. I really would just kill it. Like, I So um, the Sam Neill of it all is interesting because this movie comes out the year before sam neill becomes ultimately the biggest he will become which is the piano and jurassic park come out in 93 right. so like he's just in the wings are these two massive movies for him um and i think he's great in this movie he's just he's just chewing the scenery and he's having fun uh -huh. yeah he's okay. I, I, yeah no I, I agree and he also the problem is is his character again it's like established right at the beginning he's like Okay, I'm the the ghost in the CIA that kills everybody, uh, which I I, I got to admit that I really like the symmetry of like they he's at opens it at a hearing where he's they're like we're, is it not true you were in Nicaragua when the leader fit sure. was fell off of the the roof of his building and then you were in this war torn country and they fell off the roof of the building and then guess how does he go out he falls off the roof of a building sure I, I like that um, but. I would say, you know, I I I wish they would have gone a, one leaned one way or another with his character in terms of being, oh, I'm I'm putting on this face of this happy go lucky government, you know, guy just trying to help when we clearly know, it, you know, he overhears the uh, uh, Chevy Chase overhears right at the beginning, like, oh, they're gonna, this isn't gonna end up well for me, and and he knows right. what the stakes are, but then Sam Neill spends the entire like, oh, we're just trying to help you. It's like you you know damn well he already you already tried to shoot him like eight times before sure. this, you know. Like I wish that he just would have leaned more into the threatening part because he was really intimidating. I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually is when um, Chevy's character sneaks into his office, and there's like that little yes, game yes, of yes. cat and mouse where, mm -hmm. where you know he's alone. It's it's late at night, and Chevy's kind of stuck mm -hmm. there because if he if he opens the door, they'll know that that uh, that they're there. Uh, but like he he's in one position, and so it becomes this like little tense moment where mm -hmm. you know you've established there's a gun in the desk. You've you know established that like this dude's super smart, and you have this thing where he kind of hears a sound and. And and he goes, he does a fake yawn and gets Chevy's character to yawn, which is a really smart thing. And and then they have this conversation back and forth there where it's like, I don't know, to me, that it's like if that movie was the movie, if that scene was the movie, yeah. it was a cat and mouse 
thriller kind of thing where this really hard ass you know the uh, anton chigurh level of you know yeah. psychotic government agent tracking chasing down this average everyday schlub who's just trying to outwit him and the only advantage he has is that he's invisible and you know like if that had been the movie i think you would have that would have been something one that would felt a little bit more carpenter-esque and two would have uh mm-hmm. maybe survived a little bit more uh the test of time now i want to see yeah. now i want to see the fugitive but harrison ford is invisible like that's a that's a that's <laughs> a fun idea there's something you know? there yeah. i i mean i that scene that you're referring to Eric, is the is the scene that has that line that i love that i that was saying earlier like that that is it's the only scene in the movie i would argue that feels like the tone of what Carpenter and Chevy both want yeah. is existing. And that's kind of fascinating in its own way. But the only other person we haven't talked about is Daryl Hannah, mm-hmm. uh, who I want to talk about for, for a quick second. Cause I do think that like, she's obviously having, she's very big in the eighties. She's got Blade Runner, Splash, Roxanne, Wall Street, Steel Magnolias. I mean, she's, kind of killing it yeah. um and then she and then she does this uh and then she's in grumpy old men which i don't remember her in but i guess she was in grumpy old men yeah um good movie. i only remember yeah it is a good movie uh, good, i like good the first one. grumpy yeah. movie yeah. and old there's old men in yeah, it there's and old, grumpy, yeah, there's, yeah. Uh, yeah but ultimately it kind of she kind of disappears until kill bill when i feel like everyone all of a sudden is like where have you been all my life? Um, and she's great in that movie, but I mean, if this if this movie is indicative of anything, she was a little difficult to deal with. But I kind of wonder, like, what are your thoughts on Daryl Hannah? Do you like her in Kill Bill? Do you like her? I mean, does she did she do anything for you? Yes, I'm like. Can I do I a she's... grumpy old man sidebar? <laughs> <laughs> please, please. Grumpy old man at the time it came out ran, I think, 24 weeks at the Roxy Cinema 3 in Mitchell, South Dakota, which uh, was um, a, at, the, at the time a record. And like there was an item in the Daily Republic of Mitchell, South Dakota that was like, Grumpy Old Man has made more money than any other movie at the Roxy Cinema 3. It had a huge box office total. And I it did, did the cal- million dollars. I did the calculations. It did make like a half a percent of its box office just from that one theater in South Dakota. <laughs> so uh Grumpy Old Man, uh Daryl Hannah, thank the state of South Dakota for any residuals that you make from Grumpy Old Man. Um I mean it's a good movie. I saw it with my dad. It's fun. It was funny. It's fun. Yeah. Um yeah. I, uh, I, Daryl Hannah, I think, uh, is frequently very good, but she kind of has to be sort of an alien, uh, when she's like playing like the approachable every woman is a little harder. This movie, I don't know why she fucking falls in love with Chevy Chase. And that just like tanks the movie from the get go. Cause I'm just like, why are you in love? Because he doesn't. I mean, yeah. I'll go even one step farther. Why are you attracted to this guy? Like when they have their first scene together, it's like immediate which we don't sense. And listen, there's lots of movies where people immediately fall in love and you buy it. Mm -hmm. But these two are making out in the bathroom five minutes after meeting each other. It's a very strange meet cute. Like it's, it's very rushed and I just don't think Chevy Chase has romance lead vibes. He can play a husband. I don't know that he can play like a suitor. Does that make sense? Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. I think, I think he's miscast and then she is, even more miscast and then they have zero chemistry and then <laughs> on top of all that 
as if that wasn't enough. The script doesn't yeah. really justify them getting together. Is that like weird aside about how she's a documentary filmmaker? Like, <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe there are documentary filmmakers that would go after Nick Holloway in a bathroom like instantly. But I've met a bunch of documentary filmmakers and usually their def- identifying trait is that they are overwhelmingly empathetic human beings and are endlessly curious. And this guy is like thimble deep and is clearly a narcissist. Like there's no, even on the page in their, their attempts to give her character some sort of depth. It, it doesn't make sense with who they've got her paired with on screen. Mm. So I think that she comes off. I, I think she comes off worse than he does in the movie. Um, and a lot of it is the, the, a, the script doesn't give her much to work with, and B, she just has no chemistry whatsoever with Chippy Chase. The, the, the fix for this seems so easy to me just in terms of the thing we've talked about with Sam Neill pursuing uh, Chevy Chase. And then Daryl Hannah is already making documentaries. She like becomes the woman who's like documenting this and like they fall in love along the way there. Like, I don't, I still don't think I'd buy their chemistry, but at least it would like give you a run uh-huh. up to it. By the way, I painted my nails while we were doing they this. They look great. <laughs> oh, nice. I, 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 I do want to say though, to your point, Emily, that your fix as obviously as quick as it is right now is we're just like this would have made more sense it also would have just like actually fused her into the plot Mm -hmm. and into the story of what's going on like she really just feels like so many female sort of emotional wallpaper that exists in these movies but i have a question for you guys which as you as you were talking scott i was thinking about not just chevy chase as a as a human but like the chevy chase type the guy that Chevy Chase is sort of exuding Uh has gone out of favor by this point or is starting to get phased out. Right. The the idea, right. Yeah. The idea of a, of, of a, of a woman or anyone being drawn to the quote unquote charisma of this type of man Uh feels like it's going out of style, which is also part of, I think what this movie is struggling with. I uh, have not read the book this is based on, but this sure, looks sure. like a re- like from the Wikipedia plot summary. This looks like a sure. reasonably uh, accurate adaptation of it, and I can okay. see this exact plot working in a book. I think it once yeah. it goes to the screen. Although the one thing they change is that in the book, the accident that turns everything invisible happens because they're trying to explode a cat with a nuclear device. <laughs> I like that. That's interesting. Like that. And it fails. The cat doesn't explode, and somehow that makes everything <laughs> invisible. Sounds great. That's a, that sounds great. It makes just um, as much sense as spilling coffee on a keyboard. I mean, yeah. yeah, exactly. I do think, though, you know, this is. I understand the galleys or someone reading the the you know early version of this a studio executive, an agent, what have you, being like, this is a movie, right? Like, this is another way into the Invisible Man mythos, whatever. Um, So that all makes sense. It's literally the moment that it gets to Chevy Chase that the whole thing just kind of goes sideways. And You know what I mean? Yeah. uh, My my joke about this movie on Letterboxd is that this is the only movie that dares to ask the question uh that asks the question what would you do if you became invisible and dares to answer it with engage play the stock market but like <laughs> in the book it is like so much of like the book sounds like he's getting money by like doing insider trading because he can like listen mm-hmm. in on people he's already a securities analyst 
so that he can escape the government. The government is after, and that's in this movie, but like it gets barely, it gets bogged down in like now he has to go to this beach house. And what's the name of the guy that plays Richard? Because he's, uh, he's, fun. oh, God, he's... his voice is incredible. Oh, yeah. Gregory, I was gonna, Paul I was gonna bring him up because yeah. he sounds, he sounds like fucking Garth Marenghi. <laughs> <laughs> and every time he talked, I was just, I couldn't shake it. All I all I could see was Garth Marenghi in my head. And he's got a cravat yeah. or a scarf. Every time he was on screen, I was like, who's this guy? I like this guy. He's What's good. his story? Gregory yeah. Paul Martin. Yeah. He's wearing that hoodie that's like off one shoulder, like he's Jennifer Beals yeah. in fucking Flashdance or something. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's great. I mean, I agree with you, though, Emily, that like there's this moment where he sort of where where Nick uh, lays out the plan of what Daryl Hannah is going to do in terms of the whole like stock trading and all that kind of stuff. And then it just all happens off screen. Like we yeah. basically don't see any of it. Yeah. Uh, it's very strange. But Probably it's because it wouldn't have been visually dynamic. I mean, well, it's, it's true. You know, you would have to rewrite. The, the <laughs> bottom line with this whole thing is this movie really needed to be more of like a screwball comedy. You know, I was thinking when Emily was talking earlier about Daryl Hannah's performance and like the fix to it. And I'm thinking the fix is to bring back Goldie Hawn, who we know has like crazy chemistry with Chase from mm-hmm. from these other movies. But that's a completely different kind of movie. So this is this is sort of, um, you know, something I talk a lot about is the idea of ill-advised cinema. Ill-advised cinema are mo- is comprised of movies that aren't, they aren't just bad movies. They're movies that found were foundationally um, impossible. Like what you started with was never going to yield something good. And I love those kind of movies, you know? So maybe that's <laughs> also why I'm attracted here. Like th- this was never going to work under the, under the conditions that, that Chevy Chase wanted for it. Even the fact that they were going after Ivan Reitman to begin with leads me to believe that People at the time were like, oh, this can be another effects-heavy, sort of spooky, but sort of funny Ghostbusters thing, and, you know, we'll throw Chevy in that. And he was like, yeah, but also I want to be serious. Like, I want to take this, and they were probably like, okay, Chevy, whatever you say, here's another fucking ounce of blow, go sit in the corner, we'll we'll figure this out. And then he kept meddling until, you know, John Carpenter came to pinch hit on it. I, it it really does feel like if Chevy could have got on board with a more comedic version of this, mm-hmm. or at least I, I think this movie could have worked. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I really do think that the Ivan Reitman Chevy chase version of this, maybe even the, the Goldman script makes sense. Chevy being the squeaky wheel and all of this is what kind of fucks the whole thing. Yeah. Up, Cause it just, yeah. Where you it, go, Chevy. It, <laughs> another, another L for Chevy chase. <laughs> Um, I do uh, want to talk about the alternate ending of this movie for mm. a quick second. Yes. Because uh, there's an alternate ending where Alice gives birth to an invisible child. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah way into that. <laughs> uh, and Car- Carpenter later stated that the ending was cut because Warner Brothers was worried that the audience would react to the invisible baby as if it were a freak, an unfortunate and innocent diabolical child. Which I think... Uh, Warner Brothers is in the business of making audience-friendly, non-challenging movies. I was aware of that when I signed on, so I guess I shouldn't complain. Still, we could have released something stronger. Uh, it was a big studio film, and it suffered from what a lot of studio films suffer from. The audience preview process, cutting every high point and low point, and making it very bland. Um, I, I mean, 
give me the invisible baby. Like, what are we doing here? I'm teeing it up. As a mom with a baby, if my baby was invisible, right now they're kind of like toddling around and getting into shit. That would be so bad. That would be so annoying. I that would be right. a diabolical freak child. But uh, I want to see it on screen, just not in my house. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Well, the real reason that they didn't do that is because it's because somebody that baby is dead within the first few days somebody's gonna drop it step on it sit on it like invisible babies don't have a long lifespan i'm sorry it's like that baby in old Uh, yeah yeah. i didn't know about that about the invisible baby until uh, last night like after i watched this and then i was like looking up stuff about it and all i could and it reminded me of this thing that happened to me when i was in i went to private school for um the military school for high school and I was in a political science class, I guess, my junior year there or something, mm-hmm. maybe sophomore year. And the teacher uh, decided to show the the class threads. Are you familiar with threads? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this <laughs> fucking very long, bleak British TV miniseries about, for, for anyone that doesn't know, um, about, uh, you know, the, the results of uh, nuclear war, nuclear holocaust. And some of, I guess I must have been a sophomore because I remember one of the seniors telling me like, oh yeah, he fucking shows that every year. Um, and it's it's kind of boring, but then at the end, there's a three-legged baby. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, because there's like radiation and shit. And so the baby has like three legs. And I was like, oh my God. And so this, this got around because I was telling my classmates, I'm like, there's a fucking three-legged baby at the end of this movie. And everyone's like, fucking three-legged baby, yeah. And we get to the end of the thing. There's no three-legged baby in threads. Like, they, like, uncover a baby, and you can tell, like, there's some sort of mutation has occurred. But we expected, full-on expected to see a three-legged baby toddling around in a diaper. Of course. I felt (laughs) fucking robbed. And that's what I felt like. Doesn't it, doesn't it like, die? It dies, like, instantly, right? Because it's not viable. Yeah, but there's some, I mean, it's been years, but there's some, uh, because I wasn't in a big rush to watch Threads again. Um, It's not uh, the lighthearted laugh-a-minute thing you throw on at the drop of a hat, but I just remember it being being clear that there was something wrong genetically with the baby, but, you know, this guy had just invented the three-legged thing, like, whole cloth, as far as I recall. And uh, you spread it, so you got to be the guy everybody turned to and went, you said there yeah. was a three-legged baby in this. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, that is the kind of movie I just throw on. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've seen it a couple times, uh, mostly on, uh, it's on, it's all on YouTube. It is a very dark, despairing, depressing movie. Yeah. And Bleak. the last 10 minutes is set like 10 years after the bombs go off and everyone lives in like a feudal whatever. And this, this woman who's a baby when the movie starts, I think it is now a teenage girl. Uh-huh. She, uh, has this baby. Uh, and I, yeah, I could see if you were expecting the baby from like, it's alive, but no, it's yeah, just, exactly. it's just, it's just like a sad little thing that was like for me and my classmates that was the treat that we were looking forward to having having sat through like all four hours of fucking threads or whatever it was (laughs) can you imagine though if this very serious very thoughtful doc like almost documentary style movie about (laughs) the effects of nuclear war ended with like a garbage pail kid like running around going (laughs) so good yeah it would make us want to do a nuclear war just to see if we could get some garbage pail kits yeah well and that's how fallout was born yeah (laughs) but it it does speak to the fact that like if this movie ended with an invisible baby i'm not convinced it would have saved this film but it might have been an interesting 
final note to end it on. It would be the and weirdest st- thing about it, probably, and therefore, like, <laughs> something to talk about, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's, yeah. I can't believe we filled an hour talking about this yeah. thing when it's, yeah, it's like, great. there's really just... There's not, it's pretty invisible. It would definitely yeah, it would, much to hold on to. It would yeah. definitely be like, you know, how people every year on September 11th bring up the ending of Remember Me, an otherwise completely forgettable movie. Ooh, an Invisible yeah, Baby would be correct. this movie's, you know, people get <laughs> like yeah, yeah. with an invisible baby. And like, the, yeah, just you know, stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. With you. Just a pacifier, uh, like yeah. floating in midair, like suck, suck, suck. You would see it. Like, <laughs> you would know when, oh, yeah. when he needed to change the diaper. You'd I mean, look at how everyone baby. reacted to the baby in American Sniper. You know, so now it's invisible. That's true. Too, you Imagine know? that's double oh, your yeah. double your baby points. Yeah, you put on all that mortician's makeup that they put on Chevy Chase onto the baby, and oh it, and then it looks like the mm-hmm. Twilight baby. That yeah. sequence was so creepy. His it, it, the effects are cool, yeah. but it's also just like when she's there's just this floating face with all this like caked on makeup. Mm-hmm. It's it's weird. Yeah. Um, well, let's rate let's rate this movie. Um, I had not seen this film before. Um, I'm going to give, I, I think I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give this film a 50. I'm going to put this one on the line and just say, like, I think there's a bunch of stuff here that could have worked. I think it is maybe a noble failure. I think uh-huh. it might be being too kind to it, but that's where we, we rate this from zero to 99, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest. Um, that's where I'm at. Where are you, Emily? Where are you on this one? Uh, I mean, I didn't like it, but I also like didn't have like a horror. Like I didn't have a horror. I was just very bored. I was just like, yep, mm-hmm. this is a movie that yeah. I am consuming. Uh, 39. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about you, Eric? Um, I'm going to, like Scott, I do have this touch of some nostalgia buttons for me. So that's going to bump it up a little bit. Um, I'd say... I don't know. I'm going to be the highest yet, but I think Scott's going to top me. I will go with the radical 59 out of 99. I don't know. I'm kind of with Price is writing you. I think you might be higher than me because I'm, I'm liking the idea of just putting it right at 50 because I think there's a, it's a 50, 50 shot of whether or not you're going to find enough interesting about this on a, on a technical level, a historical level, contextual level to carry you through Mm -hmm. everything else about the movie. If you're the kind of viewer that if your brain is broken in the same ways that mine is, you might have a good time. But if you're like a normal human being, I think you would be like, no, fuck this movie. I will say I would put this movie in the 50s if there was a fucking invisible baby. (laughs) That's straight to 75. Yeah. (laughs) On the the queer phobia scale, uh, there's some like kind of anti-queer yeah. humor but it's just it has chevy chase and you know he was making fucking gay jokes the whole time they were making this <laughs> yeah. movie therefore i'm giving it a five out of ten <laughs> that, that seems fair uh, i have one last question as we wrap this up um it is it is off topic in terms of this particular uh uh movie but i have the king cast guys on here so i have to ask a question as i just mentioned to you off mic i've read my first stephen king book i read eleven twenty two sixty three, and i absolutely adored it it's mm-hmm. maybe one of the best books i've ever read what is the next stephen king book i should read Ooh, <laughs> and you've never read any yeah i want yours too emily it, it's weird we answer this fucking question every day um, I'm sorry. I don't, <laughs> no, 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 but, I don't but mean to. Well, let me finish. Uh, here's what makes it interesting: <laughs> is that I don't think I've ever spoken to someone who they've only read eleven twenty two sixty three, and now they're looking for the next yeah. one. And that's so 
non-indicative of the rest of his output, you know, right. um, then it's hard to say, because I can, I can make you all kinds of recommendations about, you know what, actually, sure. no, go read, maybe read the Dark Tower series. You know, that's like a okay. seven book commitment, and it's going to yep. devour your life for a few years. But um, it's got okay. that sort of, that or the talisman both have this similar thing where it's like a character goes through a portal and now, you know, mm-hmm. um, time travel shenanigans take place. Uh, but that that historical um, bent that, that 1122 63 sure. has is kind of hard to come by his other, his other stuff. What do you, what do you right. think, Eric? Well, it depends. Do you want something that you've already seen like an adaptation of, so it's in your mind, or do you want to have something that has probably been not probably something then, that has, cause like I've seen a fair amount of his film adaptation. Then, then, I, then I'm going to suggest uh, one of our favorites and that's revival. Um, oh, it's, call. It, okay. it's a completely, it's a complete <laughs> change of change of pace. This it's him kind of tackling a Frankenstein esque okay style thing where somebody's investigating secret electricity and the offshoots of that aren't uh aren't great but it's stephen king uh at his best and bleakest and it has uh by far his best ending that he's ever written so Mm -hmm. really okay yeah that didn't uh, fuck me up first time i read it and and that hasn't been adapted yet it probably won't be adapted for a a hot minute um (laughs) It, but like it is my favorite okay. of all of his books um that's oh, wow. one okay. that uh that's just it's my favorite and and i i absolutely recommend getting to that at a certain point again it's a commitment it's uh-huh. a it's a book stop or it's a, sorry it's a door stop it's a this giant tome but uh uh there have been good adaptations of it none of none of it's like actually as good as the book so yeah. So uh, for stuff that's been adapted, it for stuff that hasn't revival. I mean, any of his his crime stuff recently. Later, Billy mm-hmm. Summers, Holly, uh, The Outsider, like yeah. all those are are super super solid. So yeah, I mean, I have not seen any of the adaptations of The Stand, so mm-hmm. I feel like the stand at some point too. I yeah. should probably read that. So yeah, I, yeah. What about you, Emily? What are your thoughts? I usually I usually recommend um, short stories. He's yeah. got a lot of really great short stories and novellas. And that's a kind of a good way to dip your toe into his more horror forward work. Oh, okay. Um, okay. You know, because he's got some really, he's got some stories that will really fuck you up, but he's also got some that are just like kind of creepy. Um, I think any okay. of his collections has, I mean, they're short story collections, so they're hit and miss, but like there's some really great stuff in all of them. Um, I think the best book he's written is The Shining, which is a very boring answer, but like that's also a really uh, good one to read. Um, I recently read Fairy Tale, which had problems, but like I had kind of a good time with it. It's yeah. like a weird. These are really positive. For yeah, that too. It's, yeah. yeah, it's like a weird boy in his dog novel that then it's suddenly like, what if also there was like an epic fantasy in this? And you're like, what? But it's it's uh, it's that's being yeah. is it a gr- Greengrass is adapting Greengrass that right is now, adapting. No, that's yeah. interesting. Oh, it's dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So much for that. He, he was an odd. He was an odd choice. <laughs> yeah, for that, that didn't for make that any goddamn sense. We couldn't make heads or tails of that. It was like, what? The United ninety three. Paul Greengrass is doing a fairy tale epic. Okay. All right. Well, guys, I thank you so so much for coming on and talking with us about memoirs Absolutely. of Man. Where where can people hear you, listen to you, follow you, if they don't already, which they should be. Uh, well, uh, you can find us on any, any of the, any place that you normally get podcasts. So, you know, Spotify, iTunes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, under the name of the King cast. Um, 
You can find us at at Kincast19 on Twitter. And you can find me at, at Scott Wampler RIP on Twitter. Yep. And I'm at Eric Vespi on Twitter. And I will also plug our Patreon. Oh, uh, yes. That is oh, yes. uh, patreon.com slash the Kingcast. That's we uh we didn't really know how to do podcasting when we started that we were definitely uh one of the pandemic uh podcast babies that, that came out of like we're kind of all on lockdown now are we gonna get around this but we somehow managed to get some uh, really fun people we've had jamie lee curtis on the show talking about her favorite stephen king stuff uh we've had guillermo del toro elijah wood kumail nanjiani and even stephen king himself has come on at this point and uh uh, so somehow we we uh, stumbled our way into doing something people actually like, which we really enjoy. And uh, and yeah, come check us out if you haven't heard the show and interested in uh, Stephen King shit. Our the episode we're dropping the week that we're recording this with you guys is with Sam Lake, who is the creator and uh, writer for the Alan Wake video game, uh, cool. and uh, Max Payne and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so so. Uh, I don't know. It's a good I one. Bet, Listen, I bet John Carpenter loved Max Payne. That just seems like a thing he <laughs> would have been there Probably. Uh, Almost certainly. Wishes it had more basketball in it, probably, but beyond that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, Phil, can I pull a pin yes. out of my story about how Chevy Chase yeah. and I... This is, Chevy this is Chase right gave now. me this one of my, my very yeah. good friends. Yeah. Uh, so I also covered community. I covered it very heavily. Um, did. I did a number of panels where I was the moderator uh, at Comic-Con and at, um, uh, at Paley Fest. And uh, one of the things that would happen is they would kind of keep Chevy from me. They'd be like, you, you'll you get to talk to Chevy. And that would just never happen because I did so many set visits for that show. Um, and when I was at Comic-Con, his uh, wife came up and introduced herself to me and like sort of spoke for him in this like weird way, which I found, you know, and she was like, she was like, here's Chevy. And I shook his hand. He was like, hi. And then he walked off and then she just kept talking to me about his many achievements. And I was like, thank you so much, Chevy Chase's wife. <laughs> when I... When I moderated the Paley Fest panel in season two, it was, you know, a kind of the height of the show's cult, but also mm-hmm. like when it was really struggling in the ratings and like people were like, this show's going to get canceled. So I did this this panel at Paley Fest. The room is packed. It's it's just enormous group of people. We're all very excited about community. And I'm taking audience questions. And the first three or four are all from... They're all from guys wearing ironic t-shirts, you know, the kind uh-huh. of people who would like community. And I ask another guy a question, and Chevy Chase, renowned feminist, turns to me and snarls, why don't you ask a girl some questions? And I was like, oh, God. Uh, and uh, the guy, uh, you know, the, the guy asked his question, and I'm like quaking in my boots at uh, Chevy Chase telling me to have better gender parity and audience members. So I pick an audience member at random with a woman, you know, from appearances. And like uh, this, this woman asks a very good question. And then I pick a couple others. That woman DMs me on Twitter the next day is like, Hey, thank you for picking me, blah, blah, blah. It was Caroline Framke who uh then that's awesome like i she's like i want to be a tv critic and she linked me to her tumblr and i read it and i was like this is a fucking great great critic waiting to be discovered we bring her on av club she works with me at vox for many years she's going to be on the show soon she's coming on to talk about home alone 2 with us (laughs) so i am friends with caroline framke one of the most significant people in my life and career because chevy chase got mad at me (laughs) for some fucking reason about only asking men questions so that's that's my story (laughs) 
I well, there's one thing that, that so Chevy much. Chase will not tolerate, and that is misogyny <laughs> in his presence. And yeah, uh, that's an incredible and a perfect way to wrap up this episode. Thank you so so much, guys. This was an absolute blast. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Thank you. We'll so you nice to meet you. Yeah, you nice too. To meet you. Bye. No, take Bye, care. guys. I can't